Welcome to Free Associations, the podcast for anyone who's ever wondered if they should believe the news when it comes to health advice. I'm Matt Fox, a professor of epidemiology and global health at Boston University and an HIV researcher. Today, in the first part of our podcast, we're going to be talking about a study that has hit the news and takes on the topic we all care about. We're going to dig into whether or not moderate drinking is good for your heart. So hang on before pouring yourself that glass of wine so we can sort it all out. In the second part of the podcast, we'll get into the issue of what studies the media chooses to report on and focus on. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing segment, we will talk about the things that make us enjoy our jobs. Now, as we get into our first segment, let me introduce you to the group. I am joined here by Dr. Chris Gill. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Hi, Matt. Uh, Chris Gill here. Yes, I'm an associate professor of global health. I'm an infectious disease doc by training. Excellent. And And a talk show host. And a talk show host. And Dr. Don Thea. And yeah, my name's Don Thea. I'm uh, part of this group. I'm also an infectious disease specialist and I'm a professor in the Department of Global Health. Excellent. Okay, let's get into our first segment. In the first segment, we're going to be assessing a new study from the United Kingdom by Stephen Bell and colleagues that was published in the British Medical Journal that looks at the relationship between alcohol consumption and cardiovascular events. The study is titled Association between clinically recorded alcohol consumption and initial presentation of 12 cardiovascular diseases, population-based cohort study using linked health records. We'll dive into the details of the study, we'll break it down, and we'll try to see in the end what we think of the results. So as always, I'm going to get us started with some some headlines that have come out about this study. Uh, So Time Magazine says, alcohol is good for your heart, dash, most of the time. The Guardian says moderate drinking may reduce heart disease risk, which I appreciate there may. Fairly atypical. The Register says good news, everyone. Two pints a day keeps heart problems at bay. Hmm. That may be some overinterpretation. And Science Daily says moderate drinking linked to lower risk of some, but not all, heart conditions. And then uh, you should also know that the wine spectator says alcohol could reduce risk for certain heart diseases. I have no reason to believe that they are biased in Not any way, so I take that as a uh, as a given. What did the Russians say? I'm not even going to look. Yeah, I'm yeah. not even going to look. All right, so Don, let me let me start with you. Can you give us a, a, an overview of what this study did and what it was about, what they found? Sure, Matt. Um, a, a really interesting study that. Um, is was done really in the context of many years of alcohol research looking at this relationship between um, alcohol consumption and um, cardiac effects. And there's there have been lots of studies um, that have seemed to indicate that mild um, alcohol consumption um, has a protective effect on cardiovascular disease. And in fact, there's a, there's a paradox called the French paradox, which um, I think I saw that movie. <laughs> wherein the amount of cardiovascular disease and, 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 and Reynolds, associated right? conditions um, are less in French populations, and French populations are known to consume um, a lot of red wine, among other things. So, um, beginning with those observations, there's been um, quite a robust uh, portfolio of research that has looked at this issue, and. That's really what this study is about. And what this study attempts to do is use enormous numbers of people enrolled over a period of time to try to tease out 
some of the both inputs would be, which would be um, really the degree of alcohol consumption, and some of the more um, sort of detailed outputs. So we have a hypothesis, which is supported by some some evidence, that um, alcohol decreases the development of atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease. Um, strokes, um, all sorts of, of different cardiac or, um, or vascular, um, vascular effects. But the numbers have never been large enough, really, to be able to tease those out because you need large numbers. So in this study, um, they um, enrolled almost 2 million participants um, from a program in England called Caliber, which is cardiovascular research using linked bespoke studies and electronic health records. Um, which is which is really a database um, that accesses information from all of the primary health care physicians and and general practices in England, and they are able to aggregate this data and um, look at various inputs and various outputs. And um, what they what they did was um, they basically stratified those patients into these risk categories, or really the categories in terms of the amount of alcohol that they consumed, going from no alcohol consumed to lots of alcohol consumed. And then they did an analysis. And there, the, the group against which they compared the extremes was moderate alcohol consumption. So they looked at what is the effect on all of these 12 disaggregated outputs um, of no alcohol consumption or teetotalers, um, as well as heavy alcohol consumers, um, in terms of these various effects. So you know, it's a. I, I think it's a. It's a, a quite unique study that um, allows us to really look in a detailed way with some of these outcomes, in large part because of the the large numbers. And I I would just add, I think what they did here that is presumably novel compared to the studies that have come before it is they did some stuff around how they, they did their comparisons that we'll get into, but they also were able to disaggregate the kinds of cardiovascular events. So the previous literature has mainly focused on just cardiovascular disease events. Myocardial infarctions. Heart attacks, right? And they were able to, because they have this massive database, to look at more rare events and to separate out the types of events. And, the, and then part of, the, part of the issue is that, that these events may travel together. They may be confounded by, by one another because yep. cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction and high blood pressure and all the rest of that stuff travel together. Yep. And you need large numbers to be able to... Risk factors party together. That's right. And so, and so they found this this what we we refer to as this sort of U shaped curve, where you know uh, moderate drinking is better than no drinking, and moderate drinking is better than a lot of drinking. And this is a pattern that's been seen uh, quite a bit when when looking at the study. Although there have been some studies that have have contradicted this, and it suggested that maybe the reasons for this uh, are explained by certain types of bias, but but we'll get into that. So Chris, give us give us your take on this study. Would you would you like? Would you not like? Well, I thought it you know it was it was sort of it was an interesting idea to try to unpack this this uh, uh, risk group that that in many previous epidemiologic studies has been. Uh, you know, has, has, it comprises the the non-drinking group, and here they said, well, non-drinkers are really of three types, right? And and they shouldn't necessarily be considered to be equivalent. There are the people who are like true non-drinkers, as in they never drank and don't drink, and then there are ones who used to drink and now don't, and so those are former non-drinkers, and then there's the ones who like call themselves non-drinkers, but what they really mean is that they don't drink very much, mm-hmm. like they hardly ever drinkers, but they're not abstainers; they're just like rarely drinkers, yeah. and yeah, yet those yeah, all the- tend to get lumped into 
one group. You have a glass of wine at Christmas and New Year's, whether you like it or not. Exactly, like the glass of sherry with your aunt. Or the Seder. The Manischewitz wine at the Seder. Um, obviously. I have always liked Manischewitz. Oh, oh okay. you just lost all credibility. Okay. So I thought that was a, that was a, that was helpful to mm. break that because it, it 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 is another kind of it, it, on on one model it's a dose it's you know further sort of granularity in the dose response curve of alcohol and outcome, and I, I thought that was that was helpful, but. As I'm sure you're going to get into, Matt. I'm not getting into anything. Are, you are. There are very fundamental differences between people who currently drink, as opposed to those who currently drink occasionally, and those who used to drink and now don't. Like, why do they no longer? You know, I think I think that's a very interesting question. And what is it that distinguishes people who've decided categorically to stop drinking that might be very different from people who? drink casually and have a glass of wine at dinner. So these groups are not really, it's not like the only thing you're looking at is the dose response curve with alcohol. You're also looking at all sorts of interesting sort of behavioral and psychosocial aspects of these individuals that may also be fundamentally related to the cardiovascular diseases. Right. And in the interest of full disclosure, how much alcohol have you consumed today? Today? So far, not. There we go. Good. So I think part of the- It's only noon. Part of the concept that I think you're trying to get at, Chris, is the concept of a sick quitter. Yes, a healthy user and a sick quitter, right? There's two biases there, in fact. They used to be lumped into the same category, and this study has the power to be able to disaggregate them. And I think it's a really important thing, because you could be not consuming alcohol because you've got cirrhosis, and that you know is a risk factor for, you know... Other cardiovascular events, right? And I, I, this is this I think has been the criticism of this field in general. And I should say that there have been other studies done. One uh, study that was done here at Boston University that that. They specifically raised this issue of the who is the right comparison group. You don't want to compare to people who quit for reasons that might be related to heart attacks and 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 other types of heart disease. Um, but who is the right comparison group. And and this other study found that when you account for the sick quitters, as you're referring to them as, that the effect kind of goes away, that actually there's a the dose response, that more is worse. But this study doesn't find that. And I, I, I struggle a little bit with trying to figure out, you know, which study to believe, which which right. which one is better and and, and why. Um, and I, I don't have the answer to that, but I, I certainly look to the same things that you all look at, which is, okay, so what else is going on? In this population, and I, I, you know, the thing that's interesting to me always is is smoking because smoking is 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 such a big known risk factor for um, cardiovascular for cardiovascular disease. Yeah. And as you would expect, the non-drinkers are the the group that is least likely to be a, a current or former smoker, and uh, heavy drinkers are the most likely to be current or former smokers. Right, but. But that would suggest, if you really think that through, that would suggest that the smoking goes along with the drinking, and we know smoking is bad, so the bad effects of drinking may actually just be confounded by the smoking. Right. Now, they account for what they, what they can, what they can adjust for, but uh, they have categorized this as current, folk, current smoker, former smoker, never smoker, or non-smoker. And I'm just not sure that's enough to be able to fully control for the, the effects of smoking, but that said, it would still do the opposite of what you would think. It would make the the protective effect probably appear even greater. So I, I don't think it fully explains what's going on. And you know, I would, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't think there's any way to totally tease that out. I don't I don't know uh, your thoughts. It, 
Any 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 comments on uh, the way they've actually measured alcohol consumption? Yeah, I had a little bit of an issue with that because what they did is they uh, basically took from the medical records of um, every general practitioner in England or most of the general practitioners in England who would indicate in their in their records the amount of alcohol consumption. And having written in medical records before, I know that there's not a whole lot of content, uh, consistency in terms mm-hmm. of how you categorize or subcategorize the amount of alcohol consumption in your patient. And what they did was to try to, in a post hoc way, categorize th- th- all of those, those reports by the general practitioners into definable alcohol consumption categories. And right. I think that that's a little woolly. Right. I, I would like to, to, to support that point because I think that there's, 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 there are two, the, the, the two extremes on this dose response curve are the ones that are most, uh, you know, susceptible to reporting bias. Mm-hmm. That is to say, if, if you have, you know, if you are a, a heavy drinker and have sort of like problem drinking behaviors, you know, A, it's unlikely that the, that, you know, the alcohol behavior stands alone, that there are probably many other things about your lifestyle that are unhealthy that need to be considered. And then, and B, when, if you're on the, on the, the, the short end of, you know, very little alcohol exposure, you also have to sort of wonder what is it that's driving those, those, those individuals away from what would be considered to be normal, mm-hmm. which is some alcohol, but not a lot of alcohol. And so both of those two extremes don't really represent, you know, a continuous you know, category of risk behavior, really they are very different risk behaviors mm-hmm. um, that, that have, are potentially confounded with all sorts of, of you know, other cardiovascular risk behaviors yeah, or, right, or right. features. Like, for instance, if you, I know, again, we're not supposed to be talking about the table, but for those, for those listeners that do, in fact, have the table in front of them, table one, you look at the three categories of non-drinker, former drinker, and occasional drinker, and you notice that for those three groups, in comparison to the moderate, heavy, and alcohol status missing groups, they used statins a lot more. Right. There's something different about them. That, yeah. So, so, you know, either there's something different about them because they were prescribed statins or that statins themselves are preventing some of these cardiac mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, another form of, of bias that yeah. you're talking about. Well, I think more, more generically, um, you, you know, if we're, if we're talking about observational studies, the, 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 the risks to all, the validity of all observational studies... You know, there, there, there are a few things that are, are very important. One is that these studies are, are, are typically vulnerable to biases of, of different kinds. They are also um, uh, vulnerable to uh, confounding, of including unmeasured confounders in particular. Which I would say is a source of bias. Which is a, yes, in fact, you're right. So it yeah. sort of fits in both categories, I guess. And, and the third is that, that observational studies, as a rule, cannot assess causality, with very, very few exceptions. Um, and those exceptions are limited to place, cases where you have some external information that makes the direction of causality obvious. Like you go to the, the picnic and the people who ate the chicken salad got salmonella. So right? always the chicken salad. But it's like, but you know, you knew it was the picnic, right? It was that. So you knew the direction of causality. But most of the time, and, in, and certainly in this situation, you don't know the direction of causality. Uh, so I wouldn't go that far. I certainly wouldn't go as far as you just went there. But I, I, I take your point that, that uh, when I say I wouldn't go as far, I mean, I think you can assess causality in observation studies, uh, but you do have to make more assumptions. You have to but be careful. You have to be careful. But um, but I but I agree with your point. But can say more what you mean by by 
the, the direction of causality. Are you saying that you think that it's potentially possible that heart disease is causing you to stop drinking alcohol? Absolutely. So there, you know, if, if you are in one of those former drinker categories who, who maybe had a, a heart health discussion with your with your, your your general practitioner and the GP said, you know, you're really at high risk for cardiovascular disease. You need to cut down X, Y, Z, and checks down the list. You got to eat nothing but wheat germ, blah, blah, blah. No, cut out the alcohol, this and that and this and that. All of those things are not going to be measured in the food frequency form on that form. But right. this is an individual that their clinician has, you know, looking at their, you know, multivariate analysis based on their knowledge of the patient has decided that this is a risk. Yep. I agree. And I think this is this is uh, an area that we need to we need to spend more time thinking about in our observational studies and how we try to try to tease that out. Now, one really important thing about this is Don mentioned it, is that, that this is a big data analysis. I huge. Mean, huge. It's a, it's a really big data analysis. Massive. I just want to make Monster. the point that the size, large. the size, oh, don't say it, Chris. the mega, don't say megalarity, the of this database does not resolve the question of bias confounding and direction of causality. It oh. doesn't make any difference oh. how big the observational database is. Those problems are inherent in the study design, not in the sample size. So I, I, I would actually argue that it, that, it, that it makes it worse. It could, because that, it gives you beautiful little tiny confidence intervals over confounded associations. Beautiful little tiny confidence intervals. That's exactly what it does. So, 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 so to try to make this uh, more plain, that, that uh, we think about uh, sort of two types of, of errors in studies. We think about systematic biases and, and random, bi- random error. Um, systematic error are the things that we're talking about. So that's the confounding problem where risk factors party together. Random error is the case where we just get it wrong just by chance, right? right? Just, I mean, that's that's a very very oversimplified way of of, of describing. But but if yeah, if you were just doing sampling studies anyway, that's what it would would be about. And the the bigger your study is, the less and less random error there is. And what that means is you become more and more confident in your findings, even though your findings are biased because the systematic error doesn't go away. And so big studies can be misleading if you only focus on the random error component and ignore the systematic error. So we can be wrong with a high degree of precision. Exactly. And I think that's where we we need to be really careful as our studies get bigger. So maybe. We should rename them from confidence intervals to something that doesn't imply that we have more confidence. <laughs> uh, there is, there's, a, there's a whole literature on that that I, I won't get into, but yes, you're. you're I think it should just be p And there might even be a mind. Oh, wow. It hurts. <laughs> I have, I have, we should do a study on Chris's discussion of p values and my risk for heart attacks, but anyway. All right. Well, uh, any so last th- any last thoughts on that? Should yeah. we should we be uh, having our glass of wine or not? Well, I don't know. I, I came away with like there's there's two hypotheses here, right? And and we don't know which one's true. And hypothesis is one is that alcohol has some biological effect on pathophysiological pathways that alters the effects of cardiovascular disease of different kinds in different ways. Possibly true. Mm-hmm. And number two is that this is all about healthy user effects and sick user effects. Yeah. And this is all due to bias. Where it's, come down. it's all about epidemiologic monkiness. Yep. I just don't know which one's which. <laughs> I got to say, I, you know, I think that this was, a, this was an impressive study. I thought it was a, I, a, a well done study oh, with yeah. uh, big data that didn't, didn't, didn't come to conclusions that I think were in excess of what they were trying to sell. If you put this in the context of all of the other studies and all the other evidence, even though we don't have 
a smoking gun for causality, I think the preponderance of evidence that moderate to mild to moderate drinking is protective for the development of cardiovascular disease is overwhelming. And I'm not sure I buy it. I, I'm, I'm with Don on this one. I, I, this, I find this one more convincing than some of the other ones that uh, I've looked at, and I find this to be... You know, it's got some it's got some logic behind it. It's consistent with the data. That doesn't make it right for all the reasons that we've talked about. But I I find with this one that I I am I'm open to it. Well, I'm, I'd love I'm, to believe it was true personally, right. but I'm, I'm I have to say I'm I'm personally not not convinced. Do you yet believe that cigarettes cause cancer? Oh, I'm sure they do. No. But you see, that's an interesting one because in the framing heart study, you know, this this was the you know the the risk factor that the the most powerful risk factor identified that was a truly exogenous risk factor as opposed exogenous to endogenous. Meaning what? Means that yeah. this is something that comes from outside of the person. This is a a personal behavior decision to smoke or not to smoke, but it doesn't have anything necessarily to do with your biology. And so all these other things like cholesterol and blood pressure and sodium are, are much more difficult to, to disentangle because they are within, they are intrinsic to the individual. Whereas, whereas smoking well, is a, is a factor that really, you know, is, is outside of the person. So it's much more akin to, I think, to like the chicken salad and salmonella example than it is to... I don't buy it. All right. So it's light up, Don. So, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't buy that. It's extrinsic and, and, and has, has sort of an isolated effect because smoking is associated with so many other behavioral factors like drinking, like, you know, other, other, other sorts of, of behavioral factors okay, that could true. have an effect. That is true. <laughs> we may be off topic here. Yeah. We may be off topic. We will come back to this one another time. Can but we, that I is... think what we need to include in future podcasts studies that are not observational and, t- and have big data. We will do we're that. Getting a little and, and in the absence of that, until we sort it out, while I go into the, the, the swing to segment two, you two can arm wrestle for who wins this one. All right. All right. Sounds good. So moving on. Now that we've got our uh, decisions on the alcohol hypothesis, uh, we're going to go into our second segment into a, a topic that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about as I'm driving home and listening to National Public Radio. And I hear that latest uh, story on the news about some health factor that is either good for me or bad for me, or I'm probably going to drop dead. And I want to, I want to get into this idea of what is it that the media chooses to focus on when it comes to uh, covering the, the public health and, and medical literature. And then we can get into you know, how, how, how we think they choose to portray those particular, uh, particular studies. So Chris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you, and I want you to give us, a, give us your take on what you think makes a good study that the media is going to pick up, and is it necessarily the best studies? Hmm. Well, I guess um, it seems uh, one common theme is, is studies that focus on things that people like to do. Mm. Um, so I think that's a big hit. So like, you know, alcohol, of course, and caffeine and chocolate, things yep. we've talked about a lot. Um, you know, whether whether like red wine from the Napa Valley is better than white wine from Portugal. You know, I mean, I don't know do, if there's a I study. Do they that. get that specific? I'm, I'm just saying, you know, there there's, there are certain things that people we like to do. We should do that study. That would be, we should go to Portugal and do a fact-finding mission. All right. Anyway, um, so I think that's what that's one factor is, is focusing on things that people like, like cheese. You know, so if like you yeah. could find a study that said that cheese like prevents anything, people would be so psyched and it would be in the New York Times for sure. And does it not trouble you that you can always find a study that says the thing that you want? Oh, yes. Right. It, it bothers me a little bit. And now that we have big data, oh, you love we can find data. more of them. <laughs> big. You really data. like the big data. Okay. All right. So, so, so things that are uh, things that we really like to do. What about what about you, Don? What what, do you, what catches your eye that the media is trying to portray? 
Um, I think the media tends to um, portray stuff that's sensational, yeah. stuff that um, would be of um, of interest, above the fold interest, either positive or negative. I mean, I think they can be very iconoclastic in terms of shooting down yep. something that is an accepted wisdom. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that the the you know it's the the conventional media media parallels the scientific publication um, environment in 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 that they. Don't ever go back and correct the record mm -hmm. for scientific research that has been done and found to be faulty. Occasionally they do, and we know that you know the the, the work that was done by Wakefield um, and, and and vaccines and autism. I think that there's been a very good effort on the part of the media to go back and try to correct some of those clear errors in the way in the way that those studies were conducted. But it, that that's rare, I yeah. think. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's very hard to correct the record once it's out there, yes. particularly if it's something sensational. <laughs> uh, so so I was trying to think this through, and I I put things into. Uh, Buckets or categories. So, so it seems to me there's the there is the the big impact category, right? The media likes things that are, you know, cancer and heart disease and things that are are things that we're all worried about. Um, they like there's the counterintuitive bucket. So, you know, you find out that that chocolate is good for you. We want to get that out there because people like chocolate and it doesn't make sense. And it seems to me a lot of the the um, uh, stuff that comes up around uh, the psychiatric and and psychological literature often fits into that category. Uh, there's the the contradictory finding. So they like it when something comes out that says the opposite of what everything else has said. And there's a fabulous example that. I think Ken Rothman pointed me to in the New York Times for many years back in their health section, which had a, had a report on a study that uh, had been done that showed that magnets lessen the pain, diabetic pain, uh, or foot pain for diabetics. And it specifically said in the write-up that this was a tiny study done on about, like, you know, 12 people. The results were contradictory to everything that we've ever found, and we should be very cautious in interpreting it. However, it should be enacted immediately, and everyone should be doing this. <laughs> so, you know, I think they, they like the counterintuitive. Yeah. Uh, the counterintuitive and the contradictory. And, and then the other last category that I would put thing is the media likes, they like drug studies. They like uh, studies that, you know, there's some new uh, medication because we all like the idea that we could just take a pill and solve all these problems. So I think, you know, obviously, you know, the media is, is largely about uh, selling advertising or whatever it is, getting, re you know, people to listen. And I think that's all about coming up with something that is sexy, which, I, I, which is the topic I want to get into next, which is, is that serving the interest of their listeners or readers? Chris, mm. what do you think? Mm. No, I guess I would have to say it's not helpful. Um, Why not? Well, because it's more entertainment than it is public health. Yeah. You know, this is this is not really about making, you know, population level changes in behaviors on, you know, interventions that are known to be effective. It's much more superficial and it's, you know, it's here this week and next week people are focused, you know, are focused on asparagus. You know, I mean, it just it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yep. It just adds to the sort of general sort of hysteria of pseudoscience that which, I think is unhelpful. Which reminds me, I left out a category which because it was written above the others, which is the fear mongering yes. category, if which I think X, the vaccines one, yeah, or you know, or you know, your 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 uh, change your behavior. Serious. If you don't change your behavior, something bad is going to happen, or you know, uh, something's going to happen to your children, and so we're all kind of afraid of these things, and so it 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 sells. Um, and I think it's a serious problem because I think that in 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 my mind we are at this point um, 
in a, in a, a sort of a collective state of questioning science to the degree that we never yeah. did. We got, yeah. I mean, collectively, not the three of us, but collectively. Mostly Chris. Uh, th- that we that we haven't ever been, and it's it's really very very distressing to to see the degree to which science is being questioned, and I I wonder the extent to which we as a scientific community contribute to it, or we as a scientific community and the media contribute to it by providing very contradictory information to the public in ways that aren't thoroughly responsible, yeah. mm-hmm. and yes. I think it undermines the confidence in science and science's ability to really uh, arrive at fact. Yep. And it's, it's, it's very distressing. I, so I, I think the point you make, I think, goes back to something that Chris said uh, on the last podcast, which is the more, the more bizarre a finding is, the less likely it is to actually be true and the less likely it is to stand up to rigorous replication and, and to, to, to be correct. But the, but the media goes in the opposite direction. They love the counterintuitive finding. They love the odd finding. Anything that we could, we could say is, you know, going to enhance our lives or make things simpler for us. You, you just got to find that odd study that says it when the, the remaining 30 find nothing and you report on that and people want to hear that and they want to believe it. So they will, they will look to it. Yeah. When you listen, so you two are both people who produce studies that go into the literature. When you hear a story on a, a new finding, uh, what's your what's what's your what are your pet peeves or your reactions to this? For example, for me, it's it's I listen to it and my my I immediately start thinking about the the confounding problems that we've talked about. Are, are there other things that you think people should be thinking about when they hear these studies? Hmm. It's a it's a really good question, Matt. I mean, I I think I approach it much as you do. Um, you know, which is you know one of the the central tenets of science is that we should be. Skeptical, skeptical yeah. at all times. And the, 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 the job of science is not to prove your hypothesis, but to try vigorously to disprove, disprove your it. hypothesis. And if you cannot, after you know, applying all that skepticism, then the chances are perhaps it's true. But you always have to be humble and open to the possibility that it's not true. Because actually finding truth, as, as I think this is the theme of this podcast series, is, is that finding truth is, is really, 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 really hard. It is very difficult. Really hard. And, 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 and so we're sort of approaching it from the wrong perspective rather than like leaping to the conclusion that it must be true because it's based on big data. Or because we want to believe it. Or because we want to believe it, and therefore is true. Except the chocolate doing, one. Chocolate is good. For you. Well, that's categorical oh, fact. Absolutely. That is absolutely un- unimpeachable, and possibly alcohol too. <laughs> and yes, right, and cheese. Well, so but but it begs the question: Are are the goals of science and the goals of media reporting on science fundamentally out of out they, of sync? They are because the media is 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 viewing this from the perspective of entertainment rather than from public health. And I, I think that bias is wrong. Like you're saying, the sensational things are what get picked up. The sensational things are, A, almost, you know, by definition, most likely to be wrong. Uh, and so they shouldn't be picking them up because we should be most skeptical about those rather than least. Um, and, and yet they're there because they're fun and get people's attention. Yep. But, I, but I think it's important also not to impugn all of Sure. All media, because I think that there are responsible outlets that will report on scientific findings, put them in the right context with all the right you know, descriptions of limitations and provisos and caveats. And then there's there are other outlets that will pick that up and present the findings that may be 
you know, sensational without a discussion and proper presentation of all the, 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 the limitations. Well, let's go back to your, your headlines, Matt. Like, you know, based yeah, yeah. on those, those four or five news outlets, yep. which of those do you think actually accurately reflected the, the degree of uncertainty about, these, about the relationship with alcohol and cardiovascular disease? Yeah, not many of them. Certainly Wine not. spectator. That, 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 that's that's yeah. totally unbiased, yeah. obviously. I mean, a pint a day keeps the doctor away. I'm going to say that's uh, going in the wrong direction. But uh, moderate drinking linked to lower risk of some but not all heart conditions. That's fair. That's fair. It's not. It's probably not cautious enough, um, but there was. I thought there was one that was uh, moderate drinking may reduce heart disease risk. Well, there, that's that's fair. Yeah. It is possible, but people don't want to hear it may, right? People want to hear that it does, right? And I think it's complicated. And I, and I take your point that that there are there are definitely good reporters out there. And the job of a, of a media uh, of a health reporter, excuse me, is is a complicated task because you have to break down concepts that uh, are used to figure out these findings and, and explain them in a, you know, if you're lucky, a, a two to three minute uh, a report. Can you actually convey the, the limitations? Should really we, tricky. I mean, should the media only be reporting on things when there's an entire body of evidence that now supports this as opposed to the first study that finds you know, that I th- I think eating ice cream I think one of the- prevents cancer? One of the the, um, the the media outlets that is in fact really responsible and has um, I've only I think it's only been published over the course of the last couple of years is uh, Stat S T A T okay. which appears in the Boston Globe and they kind of do more in depth almost investigative reporting of scientific findings and they are kind of long you know sort of in depth long journalism approach. Yep. To reporting on scientific findings, and I I've, I always learn something when I read those articles, and I find them you know pretty unbiased and 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 quite responsible. Yeah, well, it would be it would be hard to get into a headline, uh, you know, um, um, the really accurate summary, which would be in this observational study prone to bias with confounding and unmeasured <laughs> <Yeah>. confounders, <laughs> where the direction of causality cannot be inferred. <laughs> there was a modest association. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't just. No, you you lost me at modest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a pie today keeps okay, the doctor away. That, there you that, go. I like that one. All right. Well, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna solve this one, but uh, I appreciate the thoughts. Okay, so let's let's move on to our 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 third segment, our amazing and amusing segment, where we want to highlight some things that uh, that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. Uh, Don, what do you got for us? Oh, um, Matt. Um, again, I'm going to dip into the well of the University of Leicester in uh, in England to talk about um, some of the physics yes. reports yes. that um, have been published in their journal, which is the Journal of Physics Special uh, um, Physics Special Topics. And I really recommend that the listener go to I that website uh, and look at some of these papers that have, have been reported. I usually see people reading that on the beach. I'm yeah. sure you do. Yeah. Um, so the first one I wanted to report to on was um, Indiana Jones and the <laughs> Fridge to Freedom. <laughs> the, fr- <laughs> the Fridge the to fridge. Freedom. Right. Not the bridge, the fridge. So Mansfield, Willis, Doggett, and Coley reported in 2016 um, – a paper that investigates the plausibility of Indiana Jones being able to survive the initial gamma ray radiation from a nuclear explosion by containing himself within a lead-lined fridge. Wait, wait. As you remember, so Indiana many questions. in the 2008 so many questions. film, 
Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull, Indiana is uh, oh, Crystal Skull. Indiana is left stranded in a nuclear test town. I didn't see it. He is seemingly doomed to certain death as the nuclear bomb is activated and the siren begins to count down. With literally seconds to spare, he's able to squeeze himself into a lead-lined fridge, surviving the explosion and aftermath without mm-hmm. any noticeable injuries. That's about right. In this paper, they explore the plausibility of Indiana being able to survive this event by investigating how thick the lead within the fridge would need to be, such that the initial gamma radiation given off by the bomb is no longer harmful to Indiana. Hmm. And hmm. they go through this exhaustive and description. The and the conclusion is... Therefore, we conclude that it is unlikely Indiana would have remained unharmed from the gamma radiation as the minimum thickness of lead needed is 4.58 centimeters, which is likely to be greater than the thickness of the lead lining within the fridge. He may, however, have been able to survive the gamma radiation if the whole fridge was made from lead as opposed Mm. to just lead lined. Mm. It is unknown exactly what this thickness of the fridge is. All aspects considered, however, he would have almost certainly been killed by being caught up within the blast of the bomb with the fridge being subject to an enormous amount of force. This, however, cannot be further investigated. So many questions come to mind. (laughs) Wouldn't Wouldn't the fridge of the lead have melted? You would think. So many questions. So... Again, I want to make a plug for for this particular course at the University of Leicester. I think they have done a fabulous job at getting these physics undergraduate physics majors interested in real world problems. So, yep. question one: Whatever happened to willing suspension of disbelief? And <laughs> can I now publish a scientific article which cites the willing suspension of disbelief at the beginning? <laughs> Question two, did my tax dollars pay for that? No, this is England. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, the, the, the students' tuitions paid for this. Oh, excellent. And these are all thought experiments. I mean, there's nothing other than Oh, I see. Student- this is, there's no one collecting. They didn't actually put no. Indiana Jones no, in no. a lead. No, they just do physics calculations to Got determine. It. They make assumptions about how thick the lining would be, how big the refrigerator is. Got it. So Got no it. nuclear bombs on the Isle of Wight. Got it. All right. And next time I'll talk about another zombie epidemic. I like that you give us a little preview. I like that. All right. Well, I can't Chris, that. over to you. And this time I'm hoping that I can understand it. Okay. Well, that, that, that makes two of us, I'm All afraid. Right. Because this one um, was uh, more than I could really uh, almost tolerate. I was, I was overwhelmed by the topic. A, a couple of months ago, a student uh, in one of my lectures said, why are so many viruses icosahedrons? And then icosahedron is? An icosahedron is a 20-sided, three-dimensional, thing, like a Dungeons and Dragons 20-sided. Uh, knew you were going there. Knew you were going <laughs> that there. That is an icosahedron. Uh-huh. Um, and and what, I'm what, like... What level dungeon master were you? Uh, I don't know if that's a thing, but is that a thing? No, but that's okay. okay. We've got the right idea. Chris, say a few words in Klingon for yeah. us. I don't speak Klingon. Sure but, um, you do. No, that's just a rumor. Anyway, sure you do. No, no, no. And I... Yeah, anyway, there were no Klingons at my wedding. This is uh, another rumor. <laughs> that is not the story we hear. Uh-uh. Yes. Okay. Um, I married a lass from Lothlorien. That is true, however. <laughs> anyway, um, the um, question turns out to be a really good question. Like, why are so many viruses icosahedrons? And what? I have to say, when the student said this, I have no idea. That's an excellent question. So I went and tried to find out. And then turns out that there's a the textbook chapter uh, in um, a book, and I'm afraid the 
thing I printed out here doesn't say the name of the book, but chapter three is Principles of Viral Virus Structural Organization by Prasad and Schmidt, without a T. And um, it, is a, it is actually kind of fascinating, and it has to do fundamentally with uh, energy states and with uh, equilateral triangles. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of think about like what a virus uh, needs to do, viruses are very, very small, and they have very, very small genomes, and they have to be uber efficient. And so when they're creating their structures, what you want is to create subunits that only require one gene, or a very few number of genes to be as maximally efficient as possible. And so if you can create three proteins that link together and form an, an, uh, an equilateral triangle, then these equilateral triangles can self-assemble, kind of like, you know, if you can imagine like three you know, triangles with little magnets at each end, you can link them together. And then the icosahedron becomes the maximally efficient three-dimensional form for a series that. of triangles. And they will just automatically, naturally self-assemble as a series of triangles. Now, that's only part of the answer because you have more complicated viruses where the, 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 the facet, the triangular shape, is itself created out of multiple subunits that form together to make, it's kind of like that Japanese paper game when you, you have the little shapes of paper and you have to t put them into different, you know, make little patterns out of them. Do you know that game, Don? Or, not, that's not origami, I guess. It's not origami, but it's, it's similar. And, and, um, and, and so <laughs> you're, you're putting game. them together to make, but, but it all comes down to equilateral triangles. And, and um, there's this one picture, which I, I think you can't see, but it's kind of fascinating, where you have a lattice. The listeners definitely a, a can't see it. two-dimensional yeah. lattice of three-dimensional triangles laid out flat. And what they really want to do is they want to roll themselves into a ball. Now, when Watson and Crick were looking at viruses, they talked about spherical viruses, but we now know there are no spherical viruses. Yeah. Viruses are icosahedrons. They're I not actually spherical because a sphere is not a structure you can make out of rigid building blocks like proteins. Got it. Proteins are stiff, so they can't form spheres. They mm. have to form geometric forms like icosahedrons. And the, the trickiest part, uh, because it, if you want to encapsulate your genome on the inside of this thing, you, you need to have a rigid structure that will, will protect the, the precious inner workings of the virus. Mm -hmm. And the icosahedron turns out to be the most stable geometric form to do that. Right. And it just occurs naturally in nature. And it's, it's fascinating. And the, the tricky bit, which I was like scratching my head about, is like if you imagine you starting with this flat plane of equilateral triangles that want to fold themselves, how do they know to fold up and capture the viral you know, RNA inside it or fold down and exclude the viral RNA? And right? the answer is? And the answer is that most viruses, uh, there's a, a separate step where the, the genome is injected into the structural sphere after it has been manufactured. And that usually one of the facets at one point or at several points, but usually one point, there'll be a, a tethering point which attracts the viral injecting apparatus that forces the genome into the assembled icosahedral shape. It, it, it was absolutely fascinating and, and complicated, All but right. I think well, we're going to have to cool. rename this segment. It's not, it, it can't be wacky science anymore, because this Weird. stuff that you're well, talking no, about is not... We said, we said things that fascinated us as well as amused us, All so right. it's, it is technically within the bounds, but we... Well, I will say, Chris, you have been uh, true to your, your nature, and I am going to do the same, so I'm going to follow along for my theme from last podcast. When uh, I was talking about the peer review process and the uh, the statue that was made to the peer review process, so as I mentioned, the peer review process can be quite frustrating, and so there are uh, somebody or a group of people I don't know who put together a Twitter handle, a Twitter feed, uh, where you can send in the comments that you get <laughs> from your peer I've reviewers. Seen this. this is excellent. It's called at your paper sucks. 
<laughs> and I will say I have lost at least three full days of productivity because once you get started, you cannot stop reading these things. And I'm just going to read a few of my favorites. Uh, and I got to I got to pull it out here because the the pinned tweet, the one that's sort of at the top from uh, November 2014, says. I'm afraid this manuscript may contribute not so much towards the field's advancement as much as towards its eventual demise. <laughs> okay, so this is another one. It says, this paper is wrong on almost every point, but wrong in interesting and important ways. <laughs> this manuscript in the present form is not a review article, but is rather a number of research papers stapled together. <laughs> the writing and data presentation are so bad that I had to leave work and go home and then spend time to wonder what life is about. <laughs> you need to learn how to think inside the box and stop smoking whatever it is you're smoking. <laughs> and this That's one, gratuitous. That is a little gratuitous. This is my absolute favorite one. Why do you have so many tables? Did you go to Ikea? <laughs> Viewers never have a sense of humor. No, they just they insult do not. me. No, they do not. Mine, mine just feel angry. Yeah. Well, it's my goal to get something on there. I'd love to see the responses I that know. people wrote to those. I know. It's, it's got to be absolutely fascinating. Well, that's the end of our uh, end of our show for today. Uh, if you've got any feedback uh, on this show or any others and you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at PopHealthEx. That's at PopHealthEx. Thanks for joining us. We, uh, we hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. 